Hi, and welcome to the 75th episode of the Machine Ethics Podcast. This time we're talking to Josh Gellers, the University of North Florida. This episode was recorded on the 7th of March, 2023. Josh and I get to talk about nature rights, rights for robots, non-human rights and human rights, the sphere of moral importance, shaping better policy, the Lambda Lemoyne controversy, predicates for legal personhood, the heated discourse around robot rights, science fiction as a moral playground, and much, much more. If you like this episode and want to find more, you can go to machine-ethics.net. You can contact us at hello at machine-ethics.net. Or you can follow us on Twitter, machine underscore ethics, Instagram, machine ethics podcast. And if you can, you can support us by going to patreon.com forward slash machine ethics or leaving a review wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks very much for listening. Cool. Okay, so hi, Josh. Uh, welcome to the podcast. Um, if you could please introduce yourself, who you are, and what do you do? Sure. Well, thanks so much for having me. Uh, my name is Josh Gellers, and I'm an associate professor at the University of North Florida in the Department of Political Science and Public Administration. And my primary area of expertise is environmental politics and human rights, and more recently, technology. And so I've been um, by way of environmental rights, more recently studying the rights of other non-human entities, including robots. And um, that was the subject of my 2020 book, Rights for Robots, Artificial Intelligence, Animal and Environmental Law. Awesome. Thanks, Josh. And there's this question that we always ask on the podcast, which is to you, when we're talking about AI, and you obviously mentioned your book there, uh, Robot Rights, um, what, what are we defining those things as robots, AI, those sorts of things? So as you know, right now, that's a particularly thorny issue. But I think that where I'm coming at this issue from is that the very idea of artificial intelligence is an anthropocentric conceit that human-like intelligence is both something desirable and something that we should strive to emulate in some kind of synthetic form. So it's a conceit. <laughs> yes. Yeah. It's, um, it's, it's hard to extricate our, our human impulses, for our desire to want to play God and replicate ourselves in, in other forms from what we're doing technologically. Yeah, that's really interesting. I feel like you've opened a can of worms, like straight off the bat there. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so there's there's this idea, I guess, of the AI idea as this this striving towards higher intelligence, right, or, or human level intelligence and beyond. Is that kind of what you're referring to, or is it uh, maybe other types of technology which emulate? maybe animal behavior or some sort of alien behavior i kind of like personally like to take a broader perspective on this thing but obviously i come from a position of um maybe thinking of it more than the general public does or maybe i've just played too many games or uh <laughs> read too many books i don't know no i mean that's a good point and i think that there is certainly a, a gulf between the way that the public perceives what they consider to be artificial intelligence versus how experts, scholars such as yourself uh, consider the same issue. And I think that, you know, I have studied you know, social robots, uh, but from a kind of social science and legal perspective. And, you know, 
thinking back to a more neutral view of artificial intelligence, right? Robotics is one of the sort of sub-disciplines under the umbrella of artificial intelligence. So, yeah, I don't mean to say that intelligence, practically speaking, is the only domain that AI is focused on. It's just the one that probably gets the most media attention. Mm. But uh, yeah, I mean, behavior itself is certainly um, under that umbrella as well. And so um, like you, I think I would take a, a broader view of the kinds of technologies that are sandwiched uh, in that term. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, and I, I'm really interested in how you came at this because you mentioned you, you're you coming from this kind of environmental perspective and then you have this idea that um, if the environment um, or the the world, the planet, gets some sort of um, kind of uh, ethical uh, patient status, right, um, you, you can do something to, to the world and the world... Um, should be uh, a concern right um, and then translating that to other things animal rights um, and and by extension you know non-living um, entities I guess that's probably a thorny issue as well which we'll get into but <laughs> is what did that trajectory look like coming up to uh, and looking into AI um, rights and, and robot rights? So I came at this almost by accident because as I mentioned you know my dissertation, my first book, a decade of my career had been focused on environmental human rights and environmental justice. And initially, I was looking at the origins of environmental human rights and then their impacts. And then I noticed a few years ago that people in my area of the world were starting to focus on the rights of nature, given some of the advances that have occurred in that area, most notably Ecuador's constitution in 2008, which was the first, as so as far as I'm aware, only constitution that expressly extends uh, legal rights to nature. Although it's now present at a number of other um, governmental levels, like even at the regional or subnational level, like here in the state of Florida. So basically, I was looking at what are interesting questions surrounding the rights of nature. And then I think it was because I came across a tweet about uh, Hanson Robotics's, uh, you know, humanoid robot Sophia being granted honorary citizenship by the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia. Mm. That was the first time I thought, well, wait a minute. So on the one hand, we have something that no one would ever mistake for a human being does not possess the kinds of traits that we normally associate with moral or legal status um, in nature. And then you have this strange, you know, arguably uh, public relations event where a clearly non-human but looking much more like a human entity is now given some kind of, even if it was a joke, um, implicit or not effective right. And so that made me think, what are the conditions under which certain kinds of robots would be eligible for moral or legal rights? And that was the genesis of, you know, I mean, I'd done a little bit of stuff in technology before that, but never about like, the moral status of things. It was more, you know, about green building, uh, building automation technology, crowdsourcing, and things like that. Mm. But it was because of my background in environmental human rights and then the rights of nature that I came across this. What to me was a very interesting question about uh, the moral and legal status of non-human, non-natural, technological entities. And so, what I tried to do is examine how the theory and practice on animal rights and the rights of nature 
could gain some purchase on this machine question? What could we learn from those areas and how might they apply to this particular case, which is very different in some ways? Um, and what I realized was that these areas, well, including human rights, so human rights, animal rights, rights of nature, and even potentially the rights of robots, have proceeded in completely different, albeit parallel ways. And what I sought to do was try and find common ground to where we could develop some sort of coherent theory or approach to any non-human. And that's what I realized by the end of, the, of, of writing the book was that this isn't about robots. This is about rights. This is about the manner in which societies choose what is morally and legally significant. And it's not specific to the kind of entity. It's about the development of rights discourse, jurisprudence, and how that evolves over time. Giving in that framing, you could almost then apply it to humans and then see if they satisfy those mm -hmm. conditions, right? Absolutely. This is one of the, the, the ones that I came across when I was giving um, a guest lecture in a dignity law class. And I was talking about dignity for non-humans. And this is, again, a class that's specifically focusing on dignity rights. And even the students there said, you know, it's been a semester. We still don't really know what dignity is. And in terms of its how it relates to rights theory, mm. it's circular reasoning. It's humans have dignity and therefore they have rights and only humans have dignity. Therefore, only humans have this, you know, kind of hu like human rights. Yeah. And so I view dignity uh, as very unproductive as a way of justifying the extension of rights. And I think that there are other ways that might be more productive, like uh, Nussbaum's conception of flourishing. I feel like that that's a closer parallel to the justification used for the extension of human rights than whether something has dignity or not. So I think dignity is ultimately unhelpful, but it does get us to think about, well, what are the kinds of criteria that would satisfy the extension of rights for a number of different entities, including humans and others? Mm -hmm. And I guess the the question is that you ha if you have this kind of like this framework that you can apply to different entities, and then you have to, I guess it's another uh, view onto what, what an entity is, and I think you actually pull this out in, in some of your articles that uh, those entities could be both a singular robot device uh, or some sort of uh, multitude robot device or some sort of AI disembodied thing. And, and you, there's kind of levels of abstraction that you can then look at to apply some sort of framework. Yeah, I mean, that's the reality is I borrow from... Um, philosophy of technology, especially uh, Latour. And, you know, and, and this is something that I, I didn't come through philosophy of technology to get there. It came through critical environmental law, which in some ways uh, draws on some of the same ideas. And in critical environmental law, one of the really important insights is that we have this static notion of the universe of legally relevant subjects, when in reality, these things are kind of contingent on um, particular conflicts, moments in time, uh, societal uh, choices, and so on. And so the way that it's described in the critical environmental law literature is uh, the word tentacular, where it's sort of an, an almost amoebic, and that these, uh, what we consider to be sort of the sphere of moral or legal importance, expands and contracts based on the circumstances. And this is something that's really hard for a lot of people steeped in Western 
philosophy and Western legal theory to kind of wrap their heads around because we're used to thinking in dyadic terms, right? You know, we have an adversarial legal system, um, but also in an individualist one. So it doesn't make sense even to talk about the collective rights of indigenous groups because that runs afoul of some of our assumptions in Western legal theory. So this really disrupts some of our conventional notions about what could be considered a proper legal subject or even a, a member of the moral circle if we start thinking in terms of um, actants, assemblages, hybrids, and so on. And you see at the beginning of this in some uh, philosophy of technology and environmental philosophy, but you know, by and large, it really hasn't kind of caught on in like the AI ethics space with the exception of a a really terrific book, which I, I might butcher the name, so I for, forgive me, but I think it's called Three Liability Regimes for Artificial Intelligence, Actants, uh, Hybrids, Crowds. I think that's the title. And so it says, you know, look, we're not going to be able to say that our legal relationship is a human using an AI in some context. It's going to be distributed. It's going to be multifaceted. It's going to be multi-agentic and that we need to inject complexity into our legal thinking in order to properly adjust these kinds of, um, you know, kinds of concerns so that we can adjudicate them properly. Mm -hmm. And I really like um, some of the stuff you're saying there about kind of, I'm a, quite a visual person. So having that kind of visual idea of contracting and like the sphere of kind of moral, um, uh, consideration kind of extracting um contracting and uh, growing bigger that's quite nice um i can i can see it um but it's also cool. like going on and there there is so much complexity there like it, it almost feels um unattainable you know dealing with the the law aspect and then grappling with how you can tie these things together i mean i don't come from a law background but that seems like quite a, a a task <laughs> it, it, it do we have the apparatus for that almost or are we kind of going on to a kind of parallel tract um to to make these things uh, applicable in a way how, how does that work so yeah so the, the short answer is it depends on who you ask mm. um there's a terrific book by joshua at fairfield called runaway technology and his main argument in the book is we really don't need to invent reinvent the wheel Law is based on metaphors. Language is based on metaphors. We can look back on historical precedent. We can look back on the way that we have treated other kinds of similarly positioned complex entities throughout time and draw on those analogies in a meaningful and productive way so that we're not trying to you know, cobble from scratch brand new legal concepts that are going to be very difficult for uptake and, and mm -hmm. deployment in different jurisdictions. So that's one approach, which I think it's certainly worthy of, of exploring how we can dig into our past and, and excavate things that might be useful. And then there's another perspective, which is that we do need a different kind of language. And employing that language is going to also frustrate some of these existing uh, assumptions that we have on the way that our legal and moral systems work. And that's probably more in the direction that I've gone, uh, again, with the critical environmental law influence that sort of courses through my, my work. Um, but I think that it's a great opportunity because um, these sorts of conversations need to be happening right now because as the title of, of uh, Joshua's book suggests, technology seems to sort of have this runaway um, kind of uh, perspective or tendency. And it's always the regulators that kind of seem behind the eight ball. Mm. But 
you know, and we see some of these conversations happening, you know, um, whether it's in the UK Parliament or in the United States Congress or you know, in other parts of the world, presumably. But um, I don't think that we've had enough of a diverse conversation about some of the very kinds of uh, thorny issues that you're raising. You know, how, when the rubber meets the road, do we need to deploy new legal concepts? Do we need to have, you know, brilliant legal theorists come to bear on this issue? Mm. Or can we just resurrect some of these old ideas, like ones that we've found in common law or civil law, uh, and use those to address these, what seem, seem like novel problems? Um, but I, I think my gripe is that I don't see this conversation happening. I see that the discourse is all about sort of rhetorically shutting down certain kinds of technologies without thinking more carefully about the balance between, you know, privacy and innovation or um, things like that. So I, I like to see us, you know, have congressional hearings where you have someone with outrageously outlandish ideas about regulation alongside people who are going to touch on uh, more of the Fairfieldian approach where, hey, we just got to go back into our legal theory and, and you know, draw out these ideas and they're going to serve us well in this capacity. Mm. I feel like that's it, it almost feels like a Colosseum type performance. <laughs> you know, we've got <laughs> you've got the gladiators on one side doing this like new stuff and we've got these other people coming at them on the other side and they're going to hit in the middle and then something beautiful is going to come and, and, and flourish out of that interaction maybe <laughs> i've got a, 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 a very, very optimistic take but i uh, yeah. but that's the one that i'd like to think is possible great uh we should we should we should make that happen be, uh, and televise it that'd be quite fun anyway it might be fun for us maybe it won't be fun for anyone else uh <laughs> the um I guess uh, we we talked a lot about kind of the the kind of structural need, or not the need, but the, the structural nature of this and how you've come at it. What what is the need? Um, you mentioned runaway, which um, describes to me kind of like a technology taking off and um, growing exponentially. We use exponential all the time in these sorts of subjects, but um, growing massively and becoming a monopoly or something. Are we actually talking about the the companies uh, and, the, and the money here that um, we might be talking about in sort of uh, like the e the EU regulation for AI, or are we talking about the the subject or the the entities themselves and um, how we deal with um, ever more um, let's I'm going to air quotes here intelligent systems are we talking about the systems themselves you know could you give me an insight into where you're coming at that uh, the answer is yes <laughs> um, you know basically it's, it's both of the above in the sense that the regulators the politicians at least in the United States are, are playing catch-up constantly if mm. you watched the congressional hearings about Facebook it was blatantly apparent that there's a a gap in the knowledge between what these technologies are capable of, how they function, what kinds of a threat might they pose to democracy, social justice, and so on. Um, and then the speed with which these technologies are, are being rolled out for profit maximization purposes. And so what, what tends to happen is, um, you know, what's that expression, uh, move fast and break things. That mm. tends to be the, the MO for technology development in this space. And then there's this wave of media attention around some kind of celebrated example where, you know, technology goes wrong or it does something that's unexpected or, um, you know, lots of people begin to interact with it, like in the case of ChatGPT. 
And it begins to enter the popular zeitgeist in a way that might catch the attention of the regulators who wouldn't have been thinking about this otherwise. Mm. But um, I mean, to show you just the tremendous speed with which even something like large language models have emerged onto the public scene. Uh, the other day, I, I saw uh, an advertisement. It was uh, for something, uh, a technological workshop for educators on chat GPT. I mean, this is to me the kind of thing that needs to happen, but it happens way quicker uh, than the regulators are figuring out whether this is even a productive technology that we should permit. And I think there's this, this tension, and I'm not going to say it's a productive one, but there's certainly a tension between the need to regulate and protect citizens from the malfeasance of the corporations that are rolling this stuff out and the need to allow for the flourishing of innovation, especially where this could potentially result in societally and environmentally beneficial uh, applications. And so you don't really want to stifle innovation and the capacity to realize, in your case, you know, logarithmic gains in our efficiency with, with which we conduct a lot of our societal um, you know, business. But um, we also need to be wary of the motivations of the companies that are only too happy to roll this out before it's been beta tested, um, before they have thoroughly conducted audits about the impacts, how it might affect marginalized communities. Um, and so uh, the entities are a product of the motivations of the technological companies. Um, but my argument all along has been, especially for the people who, who you know try and put uh, cold water on these developments, that's fine. You can hold that perspective that we shouldn't be doing these things. But if you don't tell the regulators to do that today, all you're doing is sort of, you know, it's blowing smoke into the air. Um, if you don't actively prevent roboticists from developing maximally human-like social robots, then all you're going to be doing is pounding sand for the next couple of decades. So outside of just complaining about things that are happening to you, what are you doing to help shape the discourse help shape the policymaking process, helping to educate the politicians about the need to regulate these kinds of technologies rather than just sort of bellyaching about them in, in the popular press. I always jump to solutions for these things, right? So um, you've painted quite a uh, a damning picture of the, the way that we are getting to grips with this in democracy. Uh, and, you know, we could push younger people into those positions quicker and, and, and change the system that way. And that might help us with the technological kind of progression issue. Um, but then the other side of that is, you know, we have this capitalist issue, right? And, and there's, there's stuff we can do there as well. It's, it's, it seems um, unlikely to me that if we had a more socialist type system that we would even have these problems in the first place because we wouldn't be maximize, maximizing, that's not a word, uh, maximizing uh, profit in the same way we do for shareholders. We would have some other system which would probably be uh, maximizing, um, you know, flourishing or social good in a way that is probably more quantifiable than my hand-waving situation that I'm, <laughs> I'm describing right now. Um but you know what I mean? It sounds like the issue there is um, is of our own creation. Um, so I wonder how, uh, apart from kind of changing the systems, um, what would you suggest that people do uh, to, to kind of participate? Well, on the one hand, I think there are mechanisms through participatory democracy that people need to think more seriously about uh, engaging with. 
And so, for example, um, in the Biden administration here in the U.S., they have rolled out um, a an AI Bill of Rights, and citizens had an opportunity in the lead up to the uh, rollout of the AI Bill of Rights to participate in its shaping. Um, as a citizen, I wrote a comment to the Office of Science and Technology Policy, just sort of expressing my views on some of the ideas that were um, tossed out in the preliminary stages. I encourage everyone to um, participate in those kinds of processes. When I was an intern in the Department of Commerce back in college, uh, one of my tasks was to summarize the constituent comments about um, a massive free trade agreement that never came to pass. But it showed me that the office was taking this very seriously and wanted to be able to communicate to um, the leadership in the agency what the American public thinks about this particular initiative. And so I think that in especially democratic societies where these policies are being rolled out, whether it's in the UK, um, you know, even parts of the developing world where are these sorts of um, opportunities, I think that people should take you know, five, 10 minutes, look over what sorts of things are being presented and then give their perspective and, and really think about how it affects them, their community, people like them, how they want to see these technologies deployed in the real world. So that's one thing is that citizens can actively participate in shaping what technology policy looks like. The other thing, as you mentioned, um, and this is a piece of advice I give when discussing environmental justice, is we have seen tectonic shifts in environmental policy, even over the past two administrations, I mean, night and day. And so if you want to see better policy shaped, uh, better policies that more reflect your values, in some cases, this may require, it doesn't have to be necessarily younger people, although they clearly have you know, a role to play in, in this process. But I think we should not only elect people who better represent our values, but run for those positions ourselves. You know, that's one of the great things about being in a democracy is you have that opportunity uh, to play a, a role in the decision-making, not only as a citizen, but also as a policymaker. And I think we need to encourage more people, more diverse people, people from uh, historically marginalized backgrounds to, to put their um, name in the hat and to run for these positions so that we don't wind up with the same you know, uh, old baked in policies that don't reflect how the world is going. And I think if we had more diversity, if we had a, a broader set of values and more debate over the kinds of policies that we want to see implemented, that we would do a lot better for ourselves in terms of addressing the kinds of existential or very on the ground practical concerns that, you know, AI in particular has animated. So we've talked a lot about the the one side of that argument um, that we alluded to earlier. And I think um, one of your articles that you wrote um, is a good example of the other side of the argument, um, which was about Google Lambda and the mm -hmm. kind of controversy around that whole debacle um, as some kind of learning point almost to, to, you know, think about this slightly differently. Do you mind just giving us a quick brief overview of that and, and how you're thinking about it? Right. So the Lemoyne Lambda controversy to me signaled an opportunity to have a robust discussion about the prospect of moral or legal status for artificial intelligence. It, it kind of began on the wrong foot, which is, 
not to um, Blake's fault necessarily, because he is someone who works in the AI space. He's not a, a philosopher. He's not a legal scholar. Um, and, and you know, the way that, that that piece kicks off is when I describe how he emailed me uh, early on during the, you know, when this controversy was sort of uh, not quite yet known to the broader public. And he asked me about soliciting legal representation for Lambda. And mm. on the basis that to him, it had demonstrated its capacity for sentience and therefore it was sort of eligible for legal personhood. That's not the way that it works, right? And in my book, I talk about this, that this, the basis for legal personhood is not dependent on sentience. Uh, sentience. And you can see that even in you know the domestic uh, legal context here in the United States, when we look at uh, corporate personhood, right? Mm, um, yep. None of the theories of corporate per corporate personhood uh, have anything to do with the company itself demonstrating its ability to experience suffering. Um, so I think he didn't understand initially what legal personhood is predicated on. And then from there took this as, you know, the proper approach by which you could then get legal representation and defend its legal rights. What wound up happening, which was very predictable, was that once the controversy went public, everyone who is sort of the elite AI ethics camp, um, you know, started to do the same things which we have seen in more recent iterations with ChatGPT, which is to you know clutch their pearls and say, "Oh my God, Lambda is not a person. Lambda is not sentient. This is so stupid. This guy is crazy, and therefore this conversation should never be happening." Hmm. That to me was a real missed opportunity. Because what's really going on, and this is something that uh, scholars like Mark uh, Kugelberg and David Gunkel have really spearheaded, is it has nothing to do with the uh, inherent properties that something possesses and how we adjudicate the possession or not of those properties and how that feeds into its moral or legal status. Because there is no coherent theory at present although animal rights theorists are uh, very interested in promoting sentience as sort of the sine qua non of uh, moral status and then eventually legal status. Instead, what we saw was that the way in which Blake related to and communicated with Lambda to him in that sort of you know, minor universe of communication suggested a kind of moral relationship. And so instead of saying, you know, all we have to do is apply an algorithm, ironically, to determine whether Lambda is sentient or not, and then therefore it would determine whether it is eligible for legal personhood. What we should have been asking is, how do people and other entities relate to each other, and what kinds of obligations do those relations generate? And so, um, again, what's lost in this is that it isn't just about how humans relate to technology or how humans relate to nature but how those entities may relate to each other. And one example of this that I came across in the process of writing my book was uh, zebrafish. And there's some research that looks at how zebrafish, the biotic ones, uh, interact with and engage with robotic zebrafish. And so, you know, no one really talks about that as well because they think probably it's not relevant for, for ethics. But um, that's where I would like to see the conversation go around um, what are our broader kind of meta-ethical assumptions about the way that the world should look? And then how does that trickle down into more specific ideas, laws, regulations, policies um, that govern social life between humans and each other, humans and non-humans, and non-humans and, and themselves? And I think you've kind of demonstrated the higher level idea of 
ethical thinking, um, ethical philosophy, the idea of that, um, you know, what is going to be the, the correct direction, the flourishing, what is our interconnected social relationship and how does how does that become uh, better or or uh, how do we decide? And, you know, that's for, for me, that's really what this whole thing's about. Right. Um, and one of the things I like to talk about when I'm um, doing talks and uh, talking about AI ethics and things like that. Um, so it sounds like you don't really want to give um, machines or AI things, let's say, um, what was the word, uh, kind of um, multitudinal, <laughs> multiple things. You don't, you don't want to give these things uh, personhood in the sense that you're wholesale giving them rights and obligations that um, we humans um, have attributed to ourselves. You see this as a, a chance to discern what obligations we have towards other things in the world, possibly the world itself, other animals and, and AI entities. Am I getting that right? Is it? And if so, is there? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, sorry. And and is there a level where we are suddenly going to reach a threshold where that becomes more important, or or we start dishing out these obligations, or is it more about having that um, framework to have at the ready to apply when it's necessary? You know, what, what's that look like? Well, I think you've characterized my overarching perspective accurately, which is, um, again, it's sort of in line with a, a Levinasian approach that we are driven by the ethics and we have to really consider what we want our ethics to be, what it looks like to be good in the world, to inspire beauty, have a good life and so on. And then that will kind of dictate how we treat other things and each other. Um, I, I think to to that point, you know, one of the things that I find absolutely bizarre, especially again among sort of the elite AI ethics folks, is that um, feminist AI or feminist uh, care ethics, for example, focuses a lot on non-human entities, and um, that care in and of itself is kind of a, a super norm or grund norm um, that is an ordering principle for the way that the world should work, and uh, that's pretty much totally ignored by people who want to have these sort of strict uh, separations between, you know, humans and nature and humans and cultural artifacts. Um, but, you know, if you look at um, feminist care ethics, you look at, um, you know, uh, literature on um, queer ecologies, you know, there are all these different ways of thinking about what kinds of obligations there should be on the basis of these, you know, meta-ethical principles. And so, yeah, that's that's much more where I'd like to see the conversation go, even though that's maybe at least an order of abstraction or order of magnitude outside of our uh, thinking on, you know, policies and things like that. And that um, once we settle on what some of those ethical principles should be, then we can kind of have them permeate our, our policies and our regulations uh, in meaningful ways to sort of guide how social life should operate. Um, Another point that you raised was, you know, that I'm not in favor of giving over uh, wholesale human rights to robots. And I think that that is probably one of the biggest misconceptions and, frankly, um, one of the kind of straw man arguments that's that's often raised by the anti-robot rights um, evangelists. They assume wrongly 
that when people are talking about the mere possibility of rights for robots, or really any kind of non-human entity, even though they focus primarily on robots, uh, is that what we want to do is to give the entire array of human rights, first, second, third, and possibly even fourth generation human rights to robots. Um, mm -hmm. But that is not the case, and I've never seen anyone actually argue that in a paper. Instead, what they're talking about are the kinds of obligations that we might have based on moral or legal status, and then the very specific kinds of rights, and in some cases, responsibilities, that those entities might be extended and or afforded uh, under certain conditions. And so what you're likely to have is not uh, the full suite of human rights being given to anything that even remotely looks like a robot, from Sophia to a thermostat. What you have instead are uh, a kind of granular and um, decentralized and complex approach to the ascription of certain moral and legal rights under certain circumstances, given the um, type of entity that we're talking about and the context in which it's deployed. So it's it's much more rich and complex than simply giving the right to vote to a robot. Again, I have never seen anyone actually argue that outside of science fiction. So that is unequivocally not something that people who write about robot rights actively are advocating for. It's a big misunderstanding in the, in the discourse. Um, what I would like to see is the conversation about what a good life looks like, how to treat everything in our space so that we live more, um, you know, uh, sustainable, resilient, peaceful lives. And, you know, I think to your point about um, where conflicts emerge, I think that's where some of these conversations ultimately will get into the issue of, well, what do we do when there is an interest here and that may conflict with an interest that a human possesses. Those are perfectly reasonable issues. And I, I don't think we've quite gotten there yet, although some people have certainly talked about that. But what's actually happening is AI ethicists are trying to, or some of the, as I mentioned, the kind mm -hmm. of anti-robot rights AI ethicists, they want to just shut the door on the conversation as if it's going to go away, which it never will, um, especially if we bury our heads in the sand. Uh, we will ensure that companies are going to be writing the laws. Um, and... To me, that's just entirely unproductive. And so I'd rather see us have a conversation about these specific rights under certain circumstances. And we've seen some empirical literature that's come out in the past couple of years, which has begun to prod those sorts of um, issues. For example, there was a paper uh, by Lima and others that it basically is a, um, a survey that was done online. And they found that the most likely and statistically significant right that could be uh, extended to artificial intelligence would be, um, and I'm paraphrasing here, but it's a right to be free from cruel treatment and punishment, which sounds a lot like animal rights in a way, right? Animal welfare. Um, so I think that, and I wrote about this in, in the latter part of my book, that that may be initially where this conversation is heading. I don't think you're going to want to see people in public taking um, a baseball bat or a knife mm or heaven forbid shooting even a, a, a social robot, you know, in the head on, in, on public uh, property. I think that that will just make people feel uncomfortable, yeah. even though these are allegedly just tools that have no moral standing on their own. Um, so I think that, you know, this issue is not going to go away and we do ourselves a disservice if we try to, to 
imagine it's not going to proceed if we write op-eds saying that we shouldn't talk about it or if we just bury our heads in the sand. Mm-hmm. Um, I feel like there's a lot in there. Um, I'm guessing you don't want to name names, but is there, is there specific people you're thinking about when you when you say the AI ethics uh, top tier people? <laughs> oh, yeah, sure. I mean, and, and they... I don't think I'm spilling the beans by mm-hmm. by exposing this or anything like that because they've been quite vocal about their opposition to even literature, conferences, papers that discuss yep. this issue. Um, you know, you have people like Emily Bender, Frank Pasquale, uh, Abiba Birhana, um, Timnit Gebru. I mean, they are very unequivocal about their opposition to discussing this. Um, you know, Joanna Bryson is another one who's yep. kind of led the charge for a long time. Again, this is no surprise to people who, who do work in this space. These are people who have written papers and 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 books and even, you know, uh, about the, the subject of artificial intelligence, what is a proper domain of conversation, what sorts of things are verboten. Um, and I think that, you know, um, as people uh, like Henrik Satra have argued, um, it's really not productive to just not discuss things, mm-hmm. even if we disagree, which we clearly are, are disagreeing on this issue, that it's in the interest of the development of science and uh, democratic uh, decision making that these kinds of conversations happen in public, um, that they are, uh, we hear both sides, uh, that it's not just one side, you know, breathing down the neck of the other or preventing the other from having a say, um, because I think What's important is that we illuminate the conflicts, that we give the public an opportunity to hear both sides, mm-hmm. and that hopefully it influences policymaking as a result. Great. Um, I I don't I don't like to take sides on the podcast, but um, maybe <laughs> maybe I'll have some sort of um, <laughs> uh, personal re- rendition of what I think on the uh, Patreon or something. But <laughs> um, so we've got this kind of uh, way of thinking about all this stuff. Um, which is, as you say, it's good that we're having this conversation, and and that there are two, there are people who feel strongly about um, bringing certain things to light. Um, I I have uh, more of a stake, I guess, in the machine ethics idea around this, and mm-hmm. uh, we have those people, the detractors, the um, rebuttalers in that space as well, um, which is always fun to you know have these discussions with. So um, I praise those people. Uh, keep 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 coming back and we can get better together. Um, and, and that's how the science works, right? You know, um, so another thing which I think I talk about a lot, um, which you brought up in, in some of the stuff I was, I was reading of you, um, which is this idea that um, w- there should be more science fiction, right? Or <laughs> that we should, we should mm-hmm. be able to explore these ideas in a multifaceted way. And, and um, I'm, I'm presuming this is the kind of idea you're talking about. You know, we have these different spaces we can explore these ideas, and uh, some of these is in science and um, political debate, and some of those spaces is cultural. You know, uh, um, mm-hmm. is is that kind of how you think about this? You know, that can help us. Absolutely, and I think you know um, that even the term robot right grew out of uh, entertainment. It was a, a play, and so it entered the popular lexicon because it was um, part of our arts and culture, and it has since, you know, obviously influenced the direction of science in this area. And I think it's really a reflexive 
uh, process by which we learn and, and expose ourselves to new ideas through, um, through literature, through comic books, through novels, through television shows. And it gets us to think about how we would suspend some of our existing beliefs and consider these alternate realities, which may or may not ever come to pass. Um, but even, you know, I'll just throw a um, plug in for, you know, political science. My, what, my first professor in political science, when I was in college, in one of my classes, showed us the uh, Darmok episode of Star, Star Trek, uh, which deals with, you know, communicating with um, uh, a foreign species, uh, in this case, an alien civilization, uh, and the, the trouble that, that that actually could brew as a result of miscommunication or misunderstanding. Um, so a lot of the, um, you know, television and movies around aliens is, is in some ways also very instructive, but it, it's a, it provides us with the kind of intellectual and creative space to think about alternate trajectories and other ways of worlding, as a phrase I like, in which, you know, um, robots have suddenly uh, become the dominant species on planet Earth, or they become fully integrated into human societies, or they become our partners. You know, one of my favorite films um, on this area uh, that I mentioned in the book is uh, Her, mm. um, which is a sort of, I would argue, quasi-disembodied AI um, that is, uh, you know, the main character uh, falls in love with. Um, I think actually what for me was so impactful about this was the parallel to the phenomenon of catfishing. And this is one that I brought up uh, in a talk I gave about robot rights a couple of weeks ago. You know, um, catfishing is really interesting because it is, at least until chat GPT starts going on dating sites, it is involving another human who is deliberately being deceptive, which is something mm. that the a lot of pe people in the AI ethics camp accuse um, the companies of doing right when they're developing these uh, chatbots and things that, or, or even robots that they're deliberately deceptive. But here you have a social phenomenon where one party is being deliberately deceptive and the other party doesn't know that. And they are buying into it wholesale mm. and they find themselves emotionally involved. And then at the very end, oftentimes, although not always, um, the person who is uh, at the wrong end of this experience finds out that they had been lied to all along. The person is not who they said they were. But what's interesting is that that doesn't change the veracity of the experience and the emotions that they had during the courtship, during the um, relationship, and so on. That was very real and almost tangible to them during that time. And I think that that's an, a way to think about what happens between humans and robots or humans and AI. Um, you know, maybe a, a less controversial example, maybe, or in some ways, maybe more controversial example are those uh, posthumous chatbots that have been developed um, to simulate a deceased loved one to kind of keep their personality going into the future so that their um, the people who survive them can continue to interact with them. And that may serve a kind of evolutionary uh, function in terms of how we grieve, how we process our emotions in the wake of someone's passing. Um, there are also clearly downsides. You know, imagine, for example, that 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 entity which you allege to or you believe that is your deceased relative or someone who is a simulacrum of your deceased relative uh, intersperses in your communication that, you know, hey, you should go change your tires and here's a $10 off coupon. I mean, there's clearly some 
you know, uh, capitalistic uh, mm. implications here that would be very unsavory. But again, getting back to sort of the popular culture, you know, I think of, um, you know, that movie Her is really impactful. There's another great movie. Well, maybe great's too strong of a word, but I saw it on a plane and it made me think a lot. Um, the movie Archive, uh, which was uh, a few years old now, but also uh, has a really great twist, which I won't ruin for anyone, but basically plays off of this idea or two ideas. One is the sort of evolution of robotics and how we are trying to make them more and more human-like on the one hand. And then also this idea of um, capturing someone's memory artificially and storing it and what would be the sort of moral, ontological, legal status of someone's personality if it was housed, you know, in what looks like kind of a, an old stereo system, um, and that allows for the continued uh, discourse between themselves and um, the person that is longing for them, and it, it plays off of these tropes, um, and, and in some ways, so I think that that's a really interesting um, film to also consider some of these issues, but. Again, my, my main point here is just that there's this sort of dialogical relationship between the um, entertainment on the one hand and what's happening in the real world. And I think it's beautiful and I think that it is important because it gives us the space to consider what these worlds could look like if we see technology develop in this direction. And, you know, it, it, it provides us with an opportunity to pause before these things are actually rolled out in the real world and to ask questions about whether this would be societally beneficial or what are some of the harms that might be relevant in these cases. So, um, yeah, I think that, that science fiction is very generative and we kind of dismiss it at our own peril. I mean, I think in more recent years, I think some of those those examples of um, the Black Mirror, uh, for example, you know, it's very often you might find in a in discussion, uh, oh, that's very dark, you know, that's very Black Mirror or something like that. So you can see how mm -hmm. uh, how the people are relating to uh, the, this cultural artifact to something that actually might be brought about, or you're saying it in terms of, oh, actually, that's unethical, or that you know, that's mm -hmm. going to be a <laughs> Um, a problem down the line in some way or it's risky mm -hmm. or whatever and you, you start having like you say this kind of uh, conversation where you actually you're actually pulling the language from culture almost mm -hmm. and going okay well, oh yeah the social social credit system which was featured in black mirror yeah um you know i'm currently using an app on my phone as part of my car insurance that monitors my driving habits using an algorithm to determine how safe of a driver i am and that will, depending on if I score well enough, um, provide me with a discount um, on my insurance premium. And that's capturing you know, information about where I'm going, when I'm going, um, the speed with which I'm driving, how hard I'm braking. And you know, you can imagine that if this, this kind of information, if it put into the wrong hands, um, could be really damaging if, for example, it discovers you know, the uh, frequency and direction where I'm going with my my daughter, um, with which, with what regularity, mm -mm. um, you know, that's, yeah. you know, that's why I, I'm kind of wary of that sort of technology. Um, so I think that, you know, black mirror in particular is certainly focused on, as the name suggests, mm. the dark side of these sorts of applications. But I think it's actually, uh, really important again, to sort of, sort of suspend some of our beliefs and to think about what would this world look like if these unchecked technological developments, especially in the hands of corporations, um, were to proceed without any kind of meaningful regulation.
I also got very uh, strong opinions about uh, uh, insurance, but I won't go into that either. Um, <laughs> um, yeah, and so obviously the f- uh, flavor of the month at the moment, uh, ChatGBT, generative AI, that sort of thing. Um, how are you feeling about this? Do you have any um, uh, comments? Um, there's a lot to go in there, but what are you thinking? Conversation right now on ChatGPT in light of the anniversary of the Stochastic Parrots paper um, is is pretty relevant, and you know there's all kinds of controversy around that. Uh, there's controversy surrounding the responses to Stochastic Parrots. Um, mm. You know, Noam Chomsky just wrote a, an op-ed in the New York Times talking about, uh, from a linguistic perspective, what Chat GPT is capable of and what it is not capable of. Again, which I think actually misses the mark on um, what is really important, sort of in a humanistic sense, about um, what's going on in the deployment of of this kind of um, technology, in, in particular the rapid um, and expansive use of LLMs. Um, and I think that that is really important and, and also sheds a light on what we mean by artificial intelligence. You know, uh, just over this past weekend, for example, mm-hmm. uh, David Gunkel and uh, Timnit, um, you know, in a, in a rare example of where these two uh, different perspectives on the spectrum might align, uh, both wrote uh, on Twitter about shifting away from using the, the phrase artificial intelligence. Um, David talked about... Um, cybernetics, which is kind of a much broader term from philosophy of technology. And Tim Nitt wrote about, um, somewhat tongue-in-cheek, uh, about a paper that was, um, or it was a blog post written several years ago, uh, that calls them salami. And it is an abbreviation, which means systematic approaches to learning algorithms and machine inferences. And the goal here is to just move away from this rigid construal of artificial intelligence um, that Noam Chomsky sort of unwittingly falls into in his op-ed by saying intelligence is X and only X, which reifies some of the concerns about, you know, how we view moral and legal status in a very strict way. Um, But also um, I think animates concerns about, um, you know, thinking of intelligence in a very singular format in ways that have been used against people of color in the past. Mm. I don't think that was his intention by the way, but I think that, um, because of his his perspective, he sort of like went right into intelligence is this. And so chat GPT does not satisfy that, that criteria. Therefore, it, it is not, um, you know, uh, mirroring uh, or exhibiting human-like uh, intelligence in any mm-hmm. any kind of important way. So I don't know if any of that stuff is relevant. I'd be happy to talk about about that. I think you just have. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, yeah, I totally. I, I I understand how people can get caught up in this idea of the the, the category, right? The artificial intelligence ness mm-hmm. of whatever we're talking about, and the AI has so much baggage and so much culture related to it uh, uh, over so many years that um, you know you have all these subcategories. You have you know, quite boring algorithms now where they were cutting edge and full AI back in the the noughties. You know, you have all these pathfinding algorithms which are well understood and and used in computer games. And then you have um, expert systems and semantic systems which were, you know, big in the 80s. And you had these massive learning systems which you had to give it loads of stuff. And it would be able to make connections and logical inferences from input. 
and now you have all this machine learning stuff and by extension you have um large language models as you refer referred to earlier and they're like built on this idea of uh large amounts of data into um very simple algorithms actually stacked uh, mm -hmm. into math massive arrays of numbers produces some mm -hmm. you know almost let's say magical output but essentially, like you were saying with the stochastic parrot, it, it takes data and it finds um, uh, connections. It finds uh, things which are uh, relevant in that information to be able to fulfill some sort of goal. You know, in this case, the large language models mm -hmm. are there to predict uh, some the next word, given that we have all this data um, so that we know roughly what the next word could be. Um, mm -hmm. Uh, and that's a very brief overview of, of how of some of these systems. And there's like artificial life and automata and loads of other things under there as, as well. Do, do you do you do you get hung up on this kind of the brevity of this stuff? And there should be easier to talk about it, or there should be more subcategories, or you know, the intelligence thing is obviously a problem because it's hard to define. Uh, same goes for consciousness mm -hmm. and sentience. We kind of talked about briefly earlier. Um, are those sorts of things that you find yourself coming back to? Um, or do you kind of say, in this instance, this thing is exhibiting these characteristics and therefore I can talk about it in this way? Uh, um, I, I feel like I've said a lot there, but like... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think I think it's really difficult. Um, you know, AI may be a, a runaway train in the sense that because universities are staking their reputation on it, because businesses are staking their value proposition on it, that I don't know we'll be able to, to change the lexicon anytime soon away from that. But I do think that it's it's useful to revisit what it is that we are saying AI is and how it's being characterized. Um, I do agree that it's such a, a large array of technologies that it's it's almost unhelpful to think of it in terms of artificial and intelligence. I mean, even the phrase you know, going back to the paper, stochastic parrots, um, as some people have observed, is neither stochastic nor really about the way that parrots behave. Um, so maybe that's sort of a flawed analogy in a way, but I do think it's it's productive to continue to talk about what it is that these things are actually doing, the manner in which they're being deployed, the, the risks that they pose, not just to humans, but to non-humans as well, to the environment, to animals, um, maybe even on a planetary scale. So I'd like to see more of the conversation, you know, less hand-wringing about the verbiage and more focused on, again, these bigger picture questions. And I don't mean the sense of, do we have the right list of AI ethics principles? Because that's already kind of been done to death. And I think mm. enough people have criticized the lack of teeth that these AI ethics principles have, that it's not useful if it's not being implemented and enforced. So let's move away from principles Let's move toward regulations. Let's have people from varied communities talk about the manner in which uh, these things are causing actual harm. Um, I think that uh, a great rubric for this, which has only recently begun to be discussed in this context, but I'm glad it is, um, is uh, uh, Sasha Costanza Chalk's book, Design Justice, um, which ha has a phenomenal way of looking at design in general, but then in the application of technology in particular, and how we can move away from technology that is designed to negatively impact marginalized communities um, through the process of designing artificial intelligence and other kinds of things like um, 
having uh, you know hackathons and things like that, which mm. they talk about in their book um, and have been discussed in the context of uh, human robot interactions. Um, so I think that that is really where I'd like to see things going because, you know, to the credit of the people who are uh, the elite AI ethics folks who are very vocal on Twitter, you know, I think that they do uh, present a real clear and present danger that companies pose, especially to people who are uh, vulnerable in our society by the unfettered rollout of technologies for the purposes of maximizing profit. And uh, those concerns should be heeded uh, immediately mm. and regularly and be thought of in the context of our regulatory environment and policymaking processes. So I think, you know, maybe to kind of put a pin in some of this or, or summarize, I think that um, the, the debates over the definitions of things miss the, the forest for the trees that these technologies are. And we need to focus more on the impacts. We need to focus on reining in the um, ambitions of these companies um, because we know that the technological uh, corporations, the what the big ones, um, you know, they're there to make a profit. They're not necessarily there to serve the interests of people, to promote social justice, to promote environmental sustainability. And so I'd like to see us double down on focusing those, holding companies accountable, making our elected officials sensitized to these kinds of issues and then legislating solutions to the problems posed by AI and other forms of technology. Wicked. Um, thank you very much. Uh, I think we've reached uh, the end now. Um, I feel like this is a conversation that could keep running and running and running. So um, <laughs> thank you very much for your time, Josh. Um, it's been a real delight. Uh, how can people uh, talk to you, find you, read your stuff? Sure. Um, there's a couple ways. You know, I'm I'm pretty active on Twitter at, at Josh Gellers. I have a website, joshgellers.com. Um, my email is josh.gellers at unf.edu. Um, and then, you know, I'm, I'm on LinkedIn and, and other social media platforms as well. So look for me there. Uh, and I would encourage anyone who is uh, skeptical on the issue of robot rights to at least do the reading, which is something that we always kind of advocate for. And so um, my book, Rights for Robots, is available for free to download um, either through Amazon or through Rutledge's website. Um, so you can just download it and read it for free there. Um, and then, you know, you can feel free to like it or dislike it. But I think being exposed to the different ways in which different uh, scholars and disciplines are thinking about this issue is really crucial. And so just to continue being part of that, that discourse and reading widely is really important. Okay, thank you, Josh, and um, we'll speak to you soon. Thanks very much. I appreciate the opportunity. Hi, and welcome to the end of the podcast. Thanks again for Josh for coming on the podcast. I think this one was uh, long in the waiting. I think we had contact maybe a year and a half ago um, coming on the podcast, and it was just bad timing with uh, the episode coming out with David Gunkel talking in a similar kind of area. So also go check out that episode, which is episode 47, Robot Rights. I really like this idea of the sphere of moral importance. And as I said, I'm kind of a visual learner, so that's kind of like a nice metaphor for me. And I am also enjoying this kind of a heated discourse of robot rights, machine ethics, lots of like meta-level kind of ethics, uh, philosophy thinking around about, you know, the permissibility of actually doing research, which is interesting, you know, 
should we actually be talking about this stuff is actually detracting um and, and that comes in all shapes and sizes so um so yeah so look out for those um, there's quite a lot of papers to do with you know whether we should be doing this stuff at all so uh, that's really interesting i think for me um it always comes down to is it sort of kind of leading into something bigger and, and we can learn from it in, in a meaningful way and i think the robot rights stuff um, the way that we framed it here with Josh um, is, is more about uh, understanding where our rights are coming from, what they should be and what they might look like in the future. And personally, um, I think the idea of AI and robots having rights in of themselves is still sort of science fiction, but it doesn't mean that we can't um, kind of discover um, what the the remit and what the level, uh, what the conditions and all these sorts of things might be as and when we get to it, if we get to it. And by the rate of kind of AI progress and our own kind of ideas around um, natural rights um, that we talked about, it's probably a good idea that we have this conversation. Um, that's my opinion anyway. Thanks again, and I'll see you next time.